I was scrolling through it, I saw a section of the contract that was titled, How We Will Get Around U.S. Export Laws. And I nearly fell out of my chair, and I knew that I needed to do something. In 2011, Ashley Yablon landed his dream job working as general counsel for ZTE, a multi-billion dollar Chinese telecom company subsidized by the regime. He quickly learned, however, that ZTE was under investigation for breaking U.S. sanction laws. They had set up shell companies that were buying these component parts and then selling them to the embargoed countries. We discuss his book. Yablon and his family had to go into hiding after his affidavit to the FBI detailing ZTE's shocking activities was leaked to the public. My wife was followed um, in a car by a Chinese gentleman as she was walking the dog down the street. And as she picked up the pace, the car picked up the pace until she was in a full sprint all the way up to the house. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Ashley Yablon, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you so much for having me. I just finished reading your book, Standing Up to China, How a Whistleblower Risked Everything for His Country. What a tale. <laughs> I mean, it's almost hard to believe, except that I know a lot of the realities around communist China, so it's not actually that hard to believe. But how did you stand up to China? Why don't you tell me that? Sure. Well, I was the attorney for one of the largest uh, telecom companies in the world, a Chinese telecom company named ZTE. Uh, I got my dream job to go there and started in 2011. I quickly learned that ZTE was under house investigation to being a threat to national security here in the United States. And a few months later, uh, an article came out in Reuters magazine uh, where they got a copy of a contract between ZTE and the country of Iran. And ZTE was selling hundreds of millions of dollars of spying technology. The problem was that they were using U.S. component parts to do that. And again, that's against the U.S. export laws, which say that you cannot sell component parts to the embargoed countries such as Iran. Uh, what ZTE had done and what I discovered was ZTE had created an elaborate scheme where they had set up shell companies that were buying these component parts and then through a series of interactions were getting those component parts back to China and then selling them to the embargoed countries. What ZTE was going to do once the U.S. was investigating them was they wanted to lie and they wanted me to be the scapegoat for them to say that they were not doing anything illegal. Um, that's when I became what is known as a whistleblower and had to go to the FBI and explain what was going on. Well, you didn't have to, right? Correct. You, you, you chose to. I chose to. Uh, and so as an attorney, uh, and that's a good point, we have a thing called attorney-client privilege. And certainly when your client comes to you and tells you they've done something illegal in the past, you as a, an attorney have a duty to keep that confidential, and that's the attorney-client privilege. The exception to that is the crime-fraud exception, and that's when your client comes to you as an attorney and they tell you that they're going to commit a crime in the future. And at that point, you have an ethical duty as an attorney to report that, and that's what ZTE was doing. They were telling me that they were going to further a crime, and this wasn't a small petty crime. This was a crime against our country. Uh, and a threat to our security and our democracy. So I felt obligated to do that, uh, not only as an attorney, but as a U.S. citizen. Before we dig into this whole thing a bit more, um, 
you know, this resulted, this whole, I guess, caper resulted in the end in 2017, I believe, in one of the largest settlements, um, uh, I guess, in U.S. history. Correct. So in 2017, uh, the uh, ZTE and the government entered into a settlement where ZTE admitted paid the largest penalty at the time of $1.2 billion in fines and penalties. Now, first of all, this was your dream job, not because you specifically wanted to work for a Chinese telecom company. This was a, your dream job because, strangely, at least to me and perhaps to our viewers, you, you were dead set on becoming a general counsel for a large corporation. So that, that, that's very interesting, I think. <laughs> that's your dream? Correct. Yeah. When I graduated law school, I again got out and was looking for a job. And I had a mentor of mine, who, one who had actually encouraged me to go to law school, and I had lunch with him. And at the time, he was a, a general counsel of a company. And a general counsel, again, is a little different than being an attorney at a law firm. Uh, at a law firm, you're uh, practicing one type of law, but you have many clients. As a general counsel, you have one client but you're practicing many types of law. Mm. And that interested me more of assisting business versus working at a law firm and just billing business. And so I, I, I like the idea of partnering with a company, assisting them through all the uh, legal aspects that they might have. So when he mentioned what a general counsel did, uh, I was immediately intrigued and that's what I wanted to do. And so for the next six years, I spent that whole time learning what he told me to do, which was, round out your tool belt. And what he meant was learn how to do a little bit of everything. A good general counsel doesn't need to be a subject matter expert on everything, but a journalist on everything. So I took that advice and I went to work at law firms and learned litigation and tried cases and took many depositions. Um, I went and learned uh, at another law firm contracts and learned how to do what they called transactional work. I then went to another law firm and learned how to uh, do HR and employment law. So after years of working at the law firms and rounding out that tool belt, I had the opportunity to go to work uh, at the lowest level, like you mentioned, uh, with McAfee, um, an antivirus software company, a US-based one, uh, here in, in Texas. And after four years of working there, I had an opportunity to be the assistant general counsel for uh, Huawei. And again, I thought, what an unbelievable opportunity. Here's a multi-billion dollar international company, and I'm assistant general counsel. So I had no idea what I was stepping into working at, uh, at Huawei, um, but quickly learned the difference between American culture and uh, Eastern culture, or specifically Chinese culture. Well, so, and, and perhaps I would argue communist culture. <laughs> but OK. How is it that you didn't understand what Huawei was, or what did you learn Huawei was? Uh, I didn't understand what it was because, to be honest, and like I talk about in the book, I didn't want to know. I was laser focused initially on just working my way up that corporate ladder and working my way up to be a general counsel. So what Huawei was or what any company was, um, wasn't really my interest. Mm. To your point, uh, I quickly learned that and, and saw what what soon were red flags of, of working with a Chinese telecom company such as Huawei and then eventually ZTE. So the way it works at these large tech companies or Chinese tech companies, 80% of your staff are Chinese nationals here on visas. So only 20% of the staff are US citizens. 
And part of that 80% were Chinese attorneys who were here in the general counsel role. And again, they're not licensed to practice here in the United States. But one of them was explaining to me um, here that, uh, you know, asking me about the law. And I said, well, we need to do this. This is the law. This is a requirement. And I remember that she leaned in and, and she said, no, it's just a suggestion. And I said, no, 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 it's, it's the law. We're required to do this. And she leaned in for effect and said, no, it's just a suggestion. And I quickly learned that that's the culture. That's what they believe. Um, that the way we have a, a moral compass or we believe that things are immoral, they don't see it that way. And it's not that they're immoral people. Uh, but it's that they don't look at business or decisions like that in the same way that we do here in the West. That didn't make you reconsider things? At the time, no. It made me question, but didn't uh, make me stop in my hubris or my desire to want to work my way up to be the general counsel. Like I said, looking back now, there were a number of what should have been red flags, and I detail those quite a bit in the book. Well, t tell me about this. Yeah. Sure. Uh, when I first started at ZTE, and I started in October of 2011, it was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and a meeting was, was called in the main conference room with all the executives. Like I mentioned, uh, all the executives that were here in the U.S. from ZTE were Chinese nationals. The only executive who was not a Chinese national and was a U.S. citizen was myself as their general counsel. So the meeting was called, and there was an article, like I mentioned, that had come out where the House Intelligence Committee was investigating both uh, Huawei, my former employer, and ZTE as a threat to U.S. national security. And they looked at me, all eyes turned to me, and they said, well, Ashley, what do we do? And I said, well, we need to hire a large uh, Washington, D.C.-based lobbying firm to assist us in this uh, House investigation. And they huddled, and again, they spoke in Mandarin, came back to me and said, well, you're our attorney. We don't understand. Can't you handle this? And I had to explain to them that, no, we need a high-powered D.C. Uh, lobbying firm to assist us. And the red flag that came out of that meeting was, yes, we can go and look for a law firm to assist us, but it's going to be you, Ashley, who's going to stand up in front of the Congress and say that we're doing nothing wrong. So again, looking back, that was a huge red flag, but I didn't see it because I didn't want to see it. Here I am as their general counsel, and I felt I had a, a duty and a job to assist my company in what was a huge scandal and what was a huge investigation. Uh, about four months later, the Reuters got a copy of the contract between ZTE, and I want to preface this, ZTE China. I was the general counsel for ZTE USA, but what Reuters had gotten a copy of was the contract between ZTE China and the country of Iran. And what it contained was that the ZTE was selling hundreds of millions of dollars of spying technology, whether it was cell towers, whether it was modems at the time. They also got a copy of over an over 900 page packing list. So we all you know, know what a packing list is when we go to Ikea and we open up uh, the box and it tells us everything that's in there. Now imagine a 900-page packing list that's telling you not only everything that's in these huge wooden crates that have been shipped to Iran, but it told also the component parts within them. So it might mention one spying tower, 
but it also mentioned, and it contained a, this US-based company widget and another US-based uh, gizmo. So that was the problem. And I remember one of the attorneys, the Chinese attorneys, when I said, why is everyone here so concerned about how they got it? We should be more focused on what we do now. And she said to me, because now we can't hide anything. And when she said we can't hide anything, I think that was the major red flag for me to realize, uh-oh, I'm really in a real pickle here. So when all the things went down when I was there in, in 2012 and right before I left, um, ZTE denied everything, was stonewalling our government, was not providing or cooperating, not providing documents, uh, and continued up that front for, like you said, for five years. And the U.S. put a, a full court press on ZTE by every branch of the government, whether it was the Department of Commerce, you name it, FBI, all of them were working towards uh, a case against ZTE, as well as Huawei, but mainly ZTE. Again, ZTE is not publicly traded here in the U.S., uh, is traded in China, but also at the time was traded in Hong Kong. And the U.S. government somehow was able to get ZTE off of the Hong Kong exchange. And the moment that that happened, that's when ZTE said, we give up, we'll comply, and we'll uh, pay whatever we need to. We need to keep being able to do business. So it was that moment that they were paid the largest penalty, which we mentioned earlier, was $1.2 billion. So, I mean, the way you're describing it makes me think, you know, this is just whatever the cost of doing business is, that's, that's what we'll do. Correct. Explain to me, I guess, what you learned about sort of the philosophy of business and how, frankly, the, the Chinese Communist Party plays in, you know, kind of decision making and also attitude or approach to dealing with business in the West. If you think about ZTE, ZTE went out of its way to show to the U.S. government that they were not run uh, by the Chinese government. That was their whole angle. That's why they wanted to show they were not a threat uh, to U.S. national security. But the reality is that they are run by the Chinese government or subsidized or assisted. And uh, that's hard for us to understand here in the West. And so everything is for business. Everything is to keep business going. And uh, I, I liken it to water that's gonna find its way through a, a crack or a hole. You can stop them here, and, and the US government was able to do that with um, the penalties and sanctions. But we saw immediately, even after ZTE got penalized and was put on a probation, within less than a year, they were fined again for breaking again the rules and regulations of that. They had to pay an additional $1.2 billion. So if you think about it, they've paid nearly $2.5 billion in penalties and as recent as just this year, we're, uh, we're in trouble again for violating terms of the order. In our minds, we think if, if, uh, that they'll stop doing it, but in theirs, they just won't. That's just their culture of, of always finding a way around things. I like to sort of highlight the fact that this kind of complete culture of amorality, that is a, that is a hallmark of communist culture. You saw it in the Soviet Union, you saw it in communist Poland, where my, fam my parents came from, and you, and you see it in China. I, like, so sometimes people sort of equate this sort of thing to Chinese culture, and you know, many, many Chinese have explained to me this, this nothing can be further from the truth. Right, and, and you're correct. When did you fully realize 
what you had gotten yourself into. I mentioned that the House Intelligence Committee was doing an investigation and they wanted to come in, uh, I believe it was April of 2012, to Shenzhen, where both ZTE and Huawei are based. And they came there and they didn't want a dog and pony show. They wanted to see concrete evidence that both companies were not run by the Chinese government. And while ZTE went out of its way to show that they were not run by the Chinese government and were going to show that to the U.S. committee, uh, Huawei took just the opposite course and really didn't care about making a differential between that they were run by the government or not. And what happened was when I was there in China, and again, that Reuters article had just come out, uh, I was led to a room because I needed to see this contract. I needed to see what, what it truly said. They wouldn't give me a copy of the contract. And I was led into a dark, something out of a movie, a dark room without any windows. And they wouldn't give me an actual physical copy. They projected it up on a wall. And so I had 15 minutes to look through this contract. And any international contract is, is the same. It's split right down the middle. One, half, one side is in English and the other is in the native language here. It was in Chinese. But as I was scrolling through it, I saw a section of the contract that was titled, How We Will Get Around U.S. Export Laws. And it laid out all the shell companies. It described what each one would do. And I nearly fell out of my chair when I saw that. And I knew that I needed to do something. Fast forward to later that afternoon, that's when the heads of ZTE said to me, well, they've they say that we have all this spying technology in Iran. What if we go over there and we say we take out all the U.S. component parts? And I said, well, it's too late. They already know that you've shipped it over. And they said, okay, what if we lie and say that we never shipped anything over there? And I said, again, they already know you've done it. And each scheme, each idea, I would have to shoot down. Till finally they said, we will comply and we will give the U.S. government all the information that they want to know. And I thought, great. Finally, we're going to be doing the right thing. When I turned around, one of the Chinese attorneys who worked for me said, Ashley, they're speaking in Mandarin right now behind your back, and they're saying that they're not going to comply, and they're going to make you, Ashley, the scapegoat, that you're going to have to swear to their lies. So I immediately flew back home to the United States. Uh, I'm a lawyer. My wife at the time was a lawyer. All my friends are lawyers. But I ended up hiring five different lawyers to assist me in this, one being a criminal lawyer who said I had criminal implications. And that's when my attorney worked with the FBI and I gave them the information uh, that led to an affidavit which pretty much became what is in the order uh, that is out against ZTE today. This caused quite a big issue for you, right? Because you know you were working for this company, you provided this affid very damning affidavit and um, which, as I understand, reads you know very similarly to you know the final settlement order that they that they signed in 2017. But someone actually unleashed this into onto the world, and then your life changed. Correct. So what happened was I did give that information to uh, the FBI. Spent two days providing them with all the details of everything I knew, the shell companies, the person, the people involved. And what happened, they created the affidavit, and I was told by my attorneys I needed to go back to work as if nothing happened. So the affidavit was used, presented to a judge to sign an order to allow them to come to the ZTE office and look for documents and do what we consider a raid. That affidavit was going to be what we call filed under seal, meaning 
privileged, no one was ever to know it existed, and what happened, it got leaked. That's when I got the phone call from a journalist who had a copy of it and said he was running the story. Obviously, I was in a panic, thinking my life is over, uh, and we could never find out, to your point, who leaked that affidavit, but somewhere in the clerk's office, uh, somehow it got leaked, and that's when everything just went crazy in my life. But so even to this day, you have no idea? No, I've, I've been uh, approached by several people with what I like to call grassy knoll uh, theories on uh, how that was leaked and why it was, but, but I don't have a definitive answer as to um, how or who leaked it. So you, you don't have a working theory at least? I have, a, I have a working theory. Yes, I do. My, and my theory is this, uh, and as an attorney, I know how clerk's offices work, and certainly a lot of big things that should be filed under seal are sometimes leaked, and I have a feeling that someone there in the clerk's office who is friends with some kind of journalist or someone in the media provided that, and I think that's how it got leaked. That's the least grassy knoll explanation of such a thing I've ever heard, I think. <laughs> Probably uh, so. Probably so. Um, well, why don't you explain to me what, what you were concerned about, what was, why things went haywire? So you have to realize what I had just provided to the FBI. It ended up being 32 pages of an affidavit of all the information. Uh, and what the information said was, here is how ZTE is getting around U.S. export laws, selling to the embargoed countries and making hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in revenue. So you can only imagine that when the affidavit gets leaked and ZTE gets in trouble, I have just cost this multi-billion dollar company billions of dollars of income and revenue uh, by my leaking and, and giving the uh, the giving away the secret sauce of how they went about doing it. And I knew that um, I've also put a threat on my life. I'm thinking, again, the Chinese government is running the company and that they're not going to be very happy with uh, this U.S. citizen who's just cost them all this money. And so when the article was going to be coming out, I knew it was going to be published. My wife and I were sitting at our computer just hitting the refresh button, waiting and waiting for that article to come out because I knew my life would never be the same after that. And certainly that's what happened. The moment that hit, we jumped up. My wife said to me, we have 30 minutes to get out of this house or we're going to get killed. And that's what we believed. And immediately, my cell phone just blew up from every news agency calling me. And you, you can't imagine, finally I had to turn my phone off, but we went into hiding and went and met with the FBI here in Dallas and met with them. And my criminal lawyer uh, turned to me when we were at the FBI office and he said, I've been coming here as an attorney representing clients for 30 or 40 years. And his words were, I've never seen the level of heavy hitters that the FBI has flown in to meet with you on your case. And the FBI apologized and claimed that they had no idea how this information got leaked. Uh, but offered my wife and I the witness protection program and offered to uh, come and check our home to see if it was bugged and a number of other things. And so we had a real decision to make. I also had to go back to work. One of my lawyers, my employment lawyer, said, we need to preserve your employment claims against ZTE, so you need to go back to the office. And I thought, 
how in the world am I going to go back to the office when I've done all that? And certainly I did. We had four FBI agents around the building in plain clothes, and I had what I referred to at, at the time as the bat phone, which was a number that I could call at any time, and FBI would be there in three to four minutes. And I did have to use that number um, on an occasion. Uh, but but that's, that's how my life turned upside down. And then I was receiving death threats from ZTE to saying that they were going to kill me. And these death threats were coming in on ZTE telephones. So all ZTE employees are given a ZTE-issued cell phone. As you move up within ZTE and new models come out, you turn in your phone and you're given a new phone. The older phones are given to newer employees. But this, the phone number was from my former employee, uh, a ZTE employee, a Chinese national, saying from ZTE, we, ZTE, are going to kill you. We're going to kill your family. We're going to kill your children. We're going to kill your children's children. And it went on and on. And it wasn't just one, but it was several. And they, if you think about a text message, mine, you could just keep scrolling and scrolling. And it kept saying the same things over and over again. And I ended up giving all that information and those, um, those text messages to the FBI. So what were you thinking at this time? I mean, I was scared to death because um, this wasn't just uh, uh, you know, a, a random employee. Here I have not only a company, but I have a whole country, uh, the Chinese country after me. And the FBI even came and did a sweep of my house. We were concerned that my house was bugged. And so my wife and I wouldn't even, even after the sweep, uh, we didn't have conversations inside the house. All the discussions were outside uh, with the sprinklers on. So something really out of like a movie. My wife was followed uh, in a car by a Chinese gentleman as she was walking the dog down the street. And with each turn that she made, the car turned with her. And as she picked up the pace, the car picked up the pace until she was in a full sprint all the way up to the house. And that's when the car drove off. So. Things like that happened. We had uh, at a restaurant 25 miles away from the house. We had two Chinese gentlemen as we sat down. They sat down right next to us. And uh, again, something out of a movie, both in black suits, white shirts, black ties, sat down right next to us. Uh, they were given their menus. They threw their menus straight down, turned directly to my wife and I and just stared. And I mentioned the uh, bat phone, the number I could call at any time to call the uh, FBI. I reached down as I was holding the menu. And I'm talking to my wife, just like you and I are speaking. And we're holding it. And she can see it out of the corner of her eye. And I said, this isn't good. And she said, no, it's not. So I fumble for my cell phone. I dial and hit the FBI. And I said, we're in a bad situation. And we're at. And before I could even say where we were, they said, we would know where you are, and we'll be there in three minutes. And certainly that's what happened. I could see people coming in quickly. They didn't look like restaurant patrons. And uh, the moment they got up, or were coming in, my wife and I got up. The two Chinese gentlemen got up at the same time. I said, they're right here to the FBI. And we ran out, jumped in our car, and sped away. So you did get offered this witness protection, but you didn't want it, hey? Like I yeah. didn't. You know, my wife and I talked about it. I came home and I told her uh, what, what had been offered to us. And my wife was an attorney and she had her own, she had just started her own law practice. And I thought, 
she has her own practice that so she's going to give up and wouldn't be able to speak to my family. And so we made a decision and in fact we said we'll just take our chances. And so uh, that's what we've done uh, for what, over a decade now. And eventually I did leave ZTE um, less than a year after that all went down. Um, and um, I thought my career had ended. Even my criminal lawyer told the FBI, you've ruined his life. You have ruined his life. He came to you, he provided you all this information, and somehow it got leaked, and now who's gonna wanna hire him? What company wants to hire the guy that's gonna blow a whistle blow on them? And that was my concern, and it came to fruition because for the next two and a half years, I couldn't get a job. If I was a large business owner, um, I might wanna have someone on my staff as a general counsel who made the decisions that you made. So I'm kind of surprised somehow that it was hard for you to find work. And that's what everyone says to me now. But at the time, uh, I couldn't get a job. So for a little over two and a half years, no one would return my calls. And here I am, a highly skilled um, uh, attorney with unbelievable experience working as a general counsel, and I couldn't even get even entry-level positions um, with companies. And I just figured, at least at the time, I thought, well, they just didn't want me. They don't, we don't want that guy, right? Maybe I had had like a, uh, a scarlet letter on me that said, we don't want him, the whistleblower, uh, to come into our company. And thank goodness at the time, I was able to work for my wife and assist her uh, in her practice, because if, if not, I, wouldn't, I, I would have been out of work. And that was like that for about two and a half years. But, but then it changed? I had an opportunity with someone that I knew and someone who had worked with me at, uh, at uh, ZTE, actually, and uh, had now moved on and was working. Again, he wasn't an attorney, but uh, was more in an HR position and uh, suggested that I could be their general counsel. And it was a US-based company. And, uh, and I did that from 2015 through about 2018. Well, it's great to hear that, that, that you're able to recover, I guess, from, from all of this to some extent. Are you worried that something could happen or is this past now or? I'll never feel safe, I'll say that. Things won't add up. I'll be somewhere and things just don't look right, things don't make sense. And I realize that that's more than just happenstance, that there's probably some validity to it. Obviously, I've been told by our government, as well as every attorney who's ever represented me, that I can never go and travel to China again, that I won't, won't ever come back. Uh, and I believe that. So do I feel safe? No. I don't think I'll ever feel safe. One of the things I really like about your book is that it's very, in a way, introspective. And so what would you say is the biggest lesson that you learned through all of this? Wow. Um, when I sat down to write the book, I didn't have an agenda as to a lesson that I wanted someone to learn. But looking back and once I completed it, I think the lessons really two stand out in my mind. And number one, the idea of ambition, or in my case, blind ambition. Obviously, ambition is great, and it's what fuels all of us. Um, but left unchecked, it can be disastrous. So I think uh, theme one is, um, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And the, the second theme, I think, is how far will you go to do the right thing? And in my situation, um, 
I think I went as far as you could go to do the right thing. I, I risked not only my job, I risked my career, I risked all my finances, but important, most importantly, I, I risked my own life. A lot of people might not ever uh, get in a situation like that or be put to that type of test, um, but I can say I was put to that test and I feel that I passed. In China, the truth is what the Chinese Communist Party says it is. Correct. So, you know, even as a means of self-preservation, this is, you know, lying is an important skill people learn. But how did this manifest in your experiences? Or I guess I want to get you to comment on this. You've hit the nail on the head. The looking straight at you and, and lying, right? And that just perplexes us here in the West of, of a way to interact or a way to do business. The day I went back to the office uh, after the article, of the, uh, yeah, the article had come out, I went to the office, like I mentioned, four FBI plainclothes officers, agents were downstairs. I went in and my door to my office was covered in police crime scene tape. And I had a large whiteboard, six by six whiteboard, uh, in my office. It had been erased and all that it said in all caps with three exclamation points was DIE. Um, I was immediately called into the CEO's office and said, why are you making up these lies? Why are you, why are you lying, Ashley? And so I, I realized that, that they were going to follow the agenda and the agenda was to make me the liar and to save the company and to promote the good of the company. And again, it was to gaslight me, to make me to be the person who was making a story up in order to protect the company. Uh, I think in the West, we think of everything very linear. It's A plus B and we get to C. And you get to business and our business dealings are getting right to the bottom line and talking immediately about the price and, and shipment and getting right to business. They don't look at it that way. What we would consider meandering or just uh, wasting time is how they do business. It's about formality. It's about getting to know the person. Mm -hmm. And if you come directly at them with business and get right to a bottom line, it turns them off. Um, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book as well, and it's to your point about lying to you. It's about face, and it's all about um, looking at you and agreeing and saying what you want to hear, but then again, always having their goal and their agenda, which is all about their protection of the, not only the company, but of the country, and to your point, uh, the, the Communist Party and towing the, the party line. And what we consider getting down to the business is not something that's done till further down the road and really at the quote 11th hour that's when business gets done. I guess my question is did you find your own ethics, your own ethical structure being impacted by this being in this type of culture? Yes. Uh, it, it weighed on me heavily when someone would look you straight in the eye and tell you something when you knew that that was a lie or that wasn't going to happen, mm. as in the instance of we're going to comply, we're going to provide all the documents to the government. And it's hard, like I mentioned, to stick to your guns, to stick to the truth, when you're surrounded by a culture that's just so diametrically opposed to your beliefs and the way that you operate. Is there anything that uh, you would have done differently looking back? I'm asked that quite a bit. And the short answer is no. I paid quite a price 
but I don't see any other way around it. Um, to do anything else would be treason, to lie to our government, and I couldn't do that. And from an attorney perspective, I had an ethical duty to report the furthering of a crime. Just prior to the Russia-Ukraine war beginning, the Chinese regime and Russia announced this kind of no-limits partnership. What do you expect these large you know, Chinese companies are doing now with respect to these you know, embargoes and sanctions? Well, like I mentioned, I, I think they're like water. It's their culture not to, to stop. They just can't. So I think that they will continue on. I think sanctions are pointless. They haven't worked. Uh, and so just sanctioning them hasn't been effective. Uh, I think that they'll continue on and find different ways. So whether they're stop this way of doing this scheme, they'll find another. So sanctions aren't the answer to stopping them. What that answer is, I don't know. I know that we've come up with uh, uh, trying to rely less upon uh, trade, trying to rely less on, you know, take for instance the Biden administration with the uh, the recent uh, chip laws and orders and things like that, trying to reduce down our dependence upon foreign companies for technology and, and things like that, which I think are, is a good start um, because I think sanctions have proven to be ineffective. Decoupling is something that's often mentioned. Right. Right. So based on your experiences, you would advocate for more of this direction of decoupling from the CCP? Yes, for sure. The U.S. is so dependent upon trade with China, and I think anything that we can do to reduce down that dependency would be uh, in our best interest. I think the whole world is dependent upon trade with China, and I think China realizes that. And so they're in a strong position. Um, and I guess, what are you doing these days? <laughs> well, after, uh, again, after I left ZT, it took a while to become uh, a general counsel or to get even a job. But I did that for a company for about three years. And in 2018, I decided to take time off, write my book. Uh, but I still worked uh, for companies and assisted them. And that's what I do now. I'm brought into uh, companies' legal departments. And I provide guidance on uh, how to make their systems more uh, smooth, and as well as to assist them with compliance and to make them more uh, compliant with, with the laws. And is this somehow, you know, companies that are interacting with the Chinese regime, or is this just in general? Just in general, okay. to whether it's uh, compliance with U.S. laws or uh, foreign laws, um, not just specific to China. Well, Ashley Yablon, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining Ashley Yablon and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck. Mm -hmm.